This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Welcome to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Jeff Clayton and Leo Alvarez from Baker Tilly and Jeff and Leo, welcome to the show. Thanks, Roger. Excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Well, this, um, I'm looking forward to this conversation. It's going to be a lot of talk about uh, what contractors need to think about or are thinking about and how Baker Tilly is supporting them and responding to some of these new and challenging government requirements. And I think the first place to start is with supply chain risk management and there's been a big regulatory push in this area, particularly with regard to Chinese uh, manufacturers of certain information technology. Um, Jeff, Leo, what's going on? Yeah, sure. So, uh, Jeff, if it's okay, I'll, I'll, I'll start. So, you know, I, trade and, and cybersecurity, I, I think, were, you know, two of the most important areas in terms of uh, our, our regulatory focus in, in 2019 and 2020. And, you know, that's something that we're not we really don't think it's going to stop, uh, depending on what happens with the administration. Um, and when it comes to information and communications technology, there, you know, there there is a, a nexus between trade regs and cybersecurity uh, that contractors need to pay close attention to. And there's been this sort of list of dizzying requirements that have that have come out for one of these organizations. I mean, you're you're looking at CMMC, you're looking at Section 889 in the in the Huawei ban, the establishment of the FASC. ICT. What is it, Leo? What's the FASC for people? I think people know the other ones, but um, yeah, yeah, that uh, it's the uh, Federal Acquisition uh, Security Council. It's a, a sort of a, a government-wide uh, organization that is supposed to be mandating uh, criteria for um, supply chain risk management programs within agencies, and they're also going to be recommending exclusion and removal notices that are a lot like what we saw with uh, Section Eight Eighty Nine. So, you know, what, what happened with Section 89 is something that we think is, it's not the last time that we're going to be seeing technology bans. So, you know, we, we, have, we have those, you know, there's been these various uh, executive orders that have come out. Uh, you know, there was a, uh, an ICT supply chain uh, uh, executive order that came out in 2019, CFIUS reform. I mean, all, there's been just all sorts of, uh, of guidance and changes in this area. So if you're a contractor, you have a, a, a lot to deal with, and it's really cast the big spotlight on supplier risk. So, uh, you know, a lot of the mature government contractors have processes in place to, you know, screen and select uh, subcontractors and suppliers, but we found that a lot of those programs are really focused on the first tier and they don't really go back, they don't go to those sub-tiers. And that's really where um, adversaries are, are focusing their attention when they're trying to, uh, you know, attack the federal supply chain. Right. So Jeff, Leo laid it out pretty well there um, of all the and, and the momentum and just the sort of flood of new requirements in this area and, and quite challenging requirements, particularly I think about Section 889 and the Huawei ban. And I know contractors do have compliance systems, those traditional government, but what are they doing to address these things and how are you guys supporting their efforts? 
Um, it's, a, it's a really good question. Um, you're right. It is a lot to deal with. I mean, I, this is not my original um, language, but I'll borrow it from somebody. I've heard the supply chain stuff uh, at CMMC. They've described CMMC as like the tip of the iceberg. And the supply chain stuff is all that stuff beneath the water there because it's just this big, huge problem, very difficult to, do, to deal with, right? There is a lot, as Leo just laid out, for contractors to be aware of. I mean, you start with just 889, and uh, you know, I, I think there was some relief given in the reasonable inquiry language in that you know, contractors didn't necessarily need to look outside of their organization. They could rely, rely on the information that they had. Um, it didn't extend at this point to um, parents, affiliates, and subsidiaries, although that might be you know, yet to come down the road here and other things like that. But but even that rule had language towards the end that kind of speaks to more than just a reasonable inquiry into this, but overall supply chain risk management kind of policy, procedure, um, systems, et cetera, that it recommended contractors put into place. Um, so, you know, I, I think in addition to what Leo laid out, an interesting additional thing that we're seeing is in a lot of procurements now, um, a lot of them from the intelligence community, um, but some from DOD and even in 8A stars, which was you know meant for small businesses, right? We're seeing not just Section 889, but requirements for companies to have a supply chain risk management or scrim plan in place. Some of these procurements have laid out the fact that there'll be audits of those plans or that they, the plans have to be submitted to the awarding agency. And in some cases, it's, uh, it's distinguishing, you know, kind of evaluation criteria for the potential awardees. So really getting a thorough scrim plan in place that reaches across the organization, because you think about um, the procurement function and, and, and how many parts of a large, complex organization that touches um, it's complex. And then you think about the supply chain this day and age in, in such a global environment and requirements in these contracts that say you need to tell us who your first, second, third tier suppliers are. You need to set up information that the government can view um, on a live basis uh, about those suppliers um, and a whole host of other things. It's complex. So contractors who are, I think are getting out in front of this are thinking about it proactively um, and, and they are kind of putting policy, procedure, and process in place, um, just like any other government requirement to deal with it. You know, th there are frameworks as well that some of these federal uh, procurement requirements point to. Uh, NIST has a, a few different standards that speak to supply chain risk. So one of the things that we've been doing with some of our clients is looking to those NIST frameworks um, and, and, and then kind of developing scrim plans along with our clients uh, or reviewing the scrim plans that they have in place already because a lot of them do against some of those frameworks to see where there are gaps and then finding ways to address those gaps and mitigate some of the risks. It's, it's just a fascinating thing too. But I mean, because when, when you think about Section 889, you know, second part of the law, Part B, was with use and you talked about reasonable inquiry, but... I mean, if you're a um, global, you know, multinational company, you know, the, the statute's pretty clear. It's like any use, right? And the cert is even that way. But that must be a big challenge that you're seeing just, you know, to try to, ex you know, it's not just new, you know, compliance sort of frameworks and things that you guys are helping construct for companies, but it's also the scope of, if you're a big company, it's the scope of what that framework has to cover. Is that, are you seeing that? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and it's a it's a really difficult problem to tackle. You're right. There is kind of what do you have in place now? And then what are you doing to prevent this stuff from getting in, in, in place in the future? And you're right. You got part A, which is delivering these types of products to the government. And, and I was speaking more to part B when I was talking before. But the use thing is, is very difficult um, to manage. And you know, digging into your own information, even even that's not really well defined what that means uh, in terms of um, what you need to do to uncover these potential information and communication technology products. One of the things I, you know, I think we've seen some companies use um, are these, you know, there are supply chain illumination tools. Yeah, what are those? Yeah, you want to speak to that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So basically the uh, supply chain uh, illumination is using publicly available data to identify relationships between uh, organizations throughout the supply chain. So that that sounds pretty pretty simple in principle, but um, you know if if you're going to be doing that kind of of work accurately, you need to be collecting the right kind of data, aggregating it, analyzing it, um, and the organizations that have been doing this well are are ones where they're using uh, artificial intelligence to sort of power their their platforms. You know, for an organization that's interested in, in exploring its exposure under Section 889, the idea is you can feed the platform you know, with information on your first tier suppliers and the platform will use uh, the, the data that it has to tell you if there's relationships between Huawei and ZTE with some of these first tier suppliers. So, you know, I, I, I think it's helpful, um, but, you know, it, it, it is important to understand that this is publicly uh, available data. So um, it's just an indicator. It's not the sort of the end all be all. Um, so it's it's one helpful tool in the toolbox for contractors to utilize. We've been seeing them seeing them turn to these sort of tools uh, a lot more in in how they evaluate their their third parties. So this would be part of the you guys are mentioning the reasonable inquiry type language that like what your duty as a contractor is using these you know supply chain illumination tools is one piece of that puzzle. And I assume you guys are help, you know you you're thinking about your clients and how to explain, you know, the process to the government. It's not just creating the process that a company is going to use. It's how you explain that to, you know, in certain, you know, in the appropriate circumstances to the government, here's the reasonable inquiry we did. So, and I'm sure you guys are thinking that about that all the time. Is that is part of your support? Yeah. And it's kind of one, like you said, it's one piece of the puzzle, one spoke in the wheel, right? Um, you need to have, you need to implement it. The information you put into it needs to be good. You need to be able to do something with the information that, that you get out of it, and act on it and all of that. Um, and then you need to have, yeah, like you said, a lot of policy and process kind of sitting around it to just manage the overall procurement process, but it can be a very helpful tool in, in, in shedding light on, on the supply chain. And a lot of them can focus on beyond just 889 compliance, but you can, look at other risks to the supply chain, like global uncertainty, pandemics, major right. forms yeah. in the world and things yeah. that interrupt the supply chain as well. Yeah. So, okay, well, guys, we're up on the break. When we come back, I want to keep the supply chain conversation going and we talk, you know, about what's well, getting a lot of attention these days. So you, you mentioned the pandemic, it's the medical supply chain, reshoring of capabilities and what you're seeing on that end as well. Um, my guests today are Jeff Clayton, he's a principal at Baker Tilly, and Leo Alvarez, who's senior manager at Baker Tilly. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Jeff Clayton, who's a principal 
and Leo Alvarez, senior manager from Baker Tilly. And uh, gentlemen, uh, first segment, we talked a lot about supply chain and we're gonna talk about medical supply chain in a couple of minutes here, but I, I wanted to return to our discussion of supply chain illumination tools, Leo. And during the break, you mentioned there's a NIST standard that just recently came out that actually highlights some of those illumination tools. Um, so tell me about that. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I think Jeff touched on uh, on this, but, you know, when, when we've been engaged to help clients in this area, our job is to evaluate how organizations are behaving against some of these key supply chain standards. Um, there's a special publication, 800-161, that has to do with federal information systems. And, you know, there's, there's ISO 28001. We do know that for NIST uh, SP 800-161, it's up for, for revision this year. Um, it hasn't been updated in about five years now. And one of the interesting things is that um, NIST just uh, updated their security and privacy controls under their uh, special publication 853. And within that, there's a specific supply chain risk management family fully dedicated to this uh, concept. And within that, there is an all source intelligence uh, control and that speaks to illumination. So, you know, from our perspective, if the standard setting bodies are recognizing the importance of this issue and actually speaking to it within their standards, it's only a matter of time before commercial organizations start to follow suit and, you know, embrace these kinds of, of things within their own practices. So, you know, there, there's it, and also an, an interesting thing that's re, uh, has happened recently is the U.S. Uh, Cyberspace uh, Solarium Commission just recently came out with a, a report about securing the um, the, the national um, uh, ICT supply chain, and within that, there's you know talk about this overarching strategy of going ahead and trying to be a little bit more comprehensive about how it is that we're approaching our relations with China and trying to decouple from uh, that economy and relying more on allies and and uh, partners throughout the world. Um, and I think that leads a little bit into the right, side and of part of that, that the the illumination tools help illuminate where you need to think about doing that, right? Yep. So, Leo, you're right. It's related to that. There's lots of, um, well, you know, given the pandemic and I think what it's highlighted with regard to, you know, the supply chain, whether it's PPE, you know, medical, surgical, or pharma, it's an interesting time. Um, and what do companies, you know, Jeff, really need to think about and be aware of as it relates to, you know, their government customers at this time and moving forward, frankly. Yep. Yeah. I mean, there is a lot, definitely a lot to unpack here. Right. Um, and there's a lot to deal with. Right. A while back, you had the Cetris case, um, which kind of changed from a Trade Agreements Act perspective. Uh, the way pharmaceuticals were thought about, at least, uh, used to be that it was where the API, the active pharmaceutical agreement ingredient, was manufactured, and um, that case kind of changed it to end, end country manufacturing. Right. Uh, more recently, you've had executive orders which have kind of flipped that back to to make it make it such that where the API is manufactured um, is is more important. Um, I'd say you know you, you so you've got that. Beyond all that, you've got um, numerous bills that have been working their way through Congress, Safe Medic Medicine Act, Protecting Our Pharmaceutical Supply Chain from China Act, Help Onshore Manufacturing Efficiencies for Drugs and Devices Act, um, and others, in addition to other executive orders focused on um, kind of onshoring or reshoring some of the medical supply chain, 
You have another executive order uh, delegating authority to the Independent International Development Finance Corporation, um, which is an executive agency development bank that basically um, directed them to issue loans that would bolster the domestic supply chain um, for items that were needed to respond to the pandemic. Uh, this summer, the, that, that, that bank and DOD signed a joint memorandum, uh, basically saying that they are intending to focus $100 million in loans on assisting with the onshoring of the medical supply chain. Um, you had uh, DOD um, putting out these commercial solution openings uh, where they were um, um, basically requesting companies to submit inquiries about how they could increase their onshore manufacturing capabilities. So you've certainly got a big push from the government to onshore, nearshore, the supply chain here for PPE, for pharmaceuticals, for medical devices, and, and, and you know, med surge. And you can understand why, right? I mean, as the pandemic hit, um, you know, you, you, you know, the supply chain was interrupted for a number of these things. I think there was even a point when China threatened to stop delivering some of the API. So that's a an issue for our entire country. It's also a defense issue. You have soldiers who need this stuff, right? So Jeff, just along those lines, I just want to get your sense of it. It, se it seems to me that this is this is one area where there's bipartisan agreement. This isn't a you know a, a an issue of Democrat versus Republican. This is something where in lockstep, and I think that legislation reflects that because there's a number of those bills and they have bipartisan support. There may be degrees of difference between them, but they all have the same theme. Is that is that your assessment of it? It is, yeah. I mean, I, I think this, and I think the supply chain security stuff as well. I, I don't think that you know, there, like you said, that there, there might be bits and pieces that change, and certain you know flavors in terms of how people speak about it that change. Uh, but I think there's real risk there uh, from a security perspective, and and from a continuity perspective here on the uh, on the on the medical side. You know, one of the things I think you know we, we talked a little bit about you know in prep for this is also that just there's pricing issues there too in terms of the cost of manufacture and you know whether or not the, on the supply side there's enough incentives to ensure that the pricing you know it, it, it reflects the it, what what is out there right now and just what the potential pricing challenges are in you know the VA schedules pharma world. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, definitely, right? Uh, I mean, there's a reason that a lot of the, you know, raw materials, either for pharmaceutical, for, for PPE, for medical devices and supplies, has been offshore, right? Why a lot of it's manufactured in China and India and other places like that. Um, it was a cost thing, right? Um, and um, bringing things back on shore, there'll be a cost associated with that, with moving the manufacturing. And then at least theoretically, the reason it was moved offshore is that the manufacturing itself is cheaper there, right? So you're going to bring it back on shore. And yeah, there are incentives. We talked about some of the loan programs that are, that are out there already. But you've got on the federal supply schedules and Medicare, Medicaid, even for drugs, right? You've got very strict pricing rules and laws in place that one, speak to how a drug will be priced and also that limit the ability to increase prices. Um, the, the rules and regs may not be quite as strict on the medical device and supply side, but again, if you're talking about the federal supply schedules, uh, there are very specific manners in which things are priced and specific rules that apply to how um, price, price increases can be, um, can be obtained. So there's going to have to be some give there or some something done, I think, if we're really going to accomplish a lot of onshoring. Either um, companies are going to have to become 
very technologically advanced in their manufacturing processes and be able to do it for the same prices, or there's going to have to be some recognition, I think, of the fact that things might cost a little more and that the rules and regs that are in place now in terms of how prices are determined might need to change a little bit. And it's uh, one of those things that um, also I think part of it's going to have to be like whether there's economic incentives, tax policy or whatever with regard to investments in, in manufacturing that can offset some of those costs. But you know what, we're up on the break already, guys. Um, when we come back, I want to start talking some other issues, um, change course a little bit, talk about Section 876 um, authority, what it is, um, and why there's GSA is paying a lot of attention to it right now, what it may mean for contractors. My guests today are Jeff Clayton, principal, and Leo Alvarez, senior manager, both from Baker Tilly. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. When the world calls for advanced electronics, we respond with C4ISR breakthroughs. When the world calls for defense from cyber threats, we provide groundbreaking cyber solutions. When the world calls for a revolution in autonomous technology, Northrop Grumman is there. At Northrop Grumman, we're constantly innovating to deliver the most effective and affordable solutions to our customers. Whether it's cyber, logistics, autonomous systems, C4ISR, or strike, that's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com performance. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder. My guest today is Jeff Clayton. He's principal at Baker Tilly and Leo Alvarez, who's senior manager also from Baker Tilly. And we've spent the first couple of segments talking a lot about supply chain and, and what's going on there. And there's lots of stuff that people are going to have to be paying attention to, I think, for years to come. But in this segment, uh, yeah, I think we're going to talk a little bit about something that actually might streamline processes for government contractors and hope and hopefully create opportunity that's that's the purpose of it and increased competition and that's section 876 which is a authority with regard to you know the evaluation of price at the contract level for multiple work contracts can you guys just lay out what the authority provides for first i think fully i i've touched on it but um and then we'll get into you know what you're seeing and what are the pros and cons of it and that sort of thing Sure. Yeah. So, um, as you said, the uh, the authority basically um, allows the federal government to award uh, IDIQ Max and even potentially uh, federal supply schedule contracts to uh, for professional services without considering price as an evaluation criteria. Um, and the premise is that it will help uh, you know competition downstream. So you know that's the big thing. I you know from a benefit standpoint, I mean. I think that, you know, from our perspective, it, it, it will allow the federal government to award uh, contracts in a more timely fashion. You know, there's no longer the, the need to evaluate, you know, services pricing as a, as a separate factor. Um, you know, from, a, from a, a proposal standpoint, once the contract's secured, it also helps contractors. They no longer have to worry about mapping, you know, master contracts level labor categories to labor categories that are established at the task order level or think about, you know, BPAs and how organizations sometimes have to, you know, go ahead and map from, you know, a, a master contract level to the BPA to the task order. So it should streamline some of those things, you know, from a from an, a, an, an FSS perspective, it could also make the program a lot more attractive to services contractors. You no longer have to worry about the price reductions clauses, which is, as you know, is a huge source of, uh, of risk for organizations and sometimes chases them uh, uh, away from the program. 
So, you know, a, a lot of be benefits to be had, but there are, you know, some challenges too that I, I think that we see. Um, what about contractors that, you know, sell products uh, along with, with services? They're still going to have to go through a, you know, potentially a, a master contract level evaluation of pricing uh, for, for those pro uh, products. Another, you know, detriment to contractors potentially is, um, you know, limited insight into competitor uh, labor rates. So the that that lack of insight could make it more difficult for contractors to bid on opportunities. And I guess on the flip side of that too, it it could increase competition at the task force, which, which you know has some uh, some yes. drops for contractors too. So it, it seems to me, and I want to go back to the price reduction clause a little bit, and just it seems, I mean, I view the price reduction clause as a restraint on trade. It restricts the ability of companies to compete in the private sector, uh, you know, and the government is creating this restraint on trade. But it's also bad contracting policy, it seems to me, because it it ties the hands of the companies and how they offer to the government, as well as it creates that Civil False Claims Act potential liability. Um, and I think, Leo, you picked up on a really important point, and the idea that, you know, 876 isn't just about streamlining in the schedules context at the contract level, it's about streamlining at the task order and contract administration level, whether it's the trying to your your labor categories to the government requirements and not having to deal with all that anymore first and also that continuous compliance cost associated with the price reduction clause, you know, a clause that is, you know, um, pernicious and, you know, in its uh, impact on the market. Um, I'm just trying to see, you know, I guess from a, from that perspective, you know, what are you seeing in terms of people's interest in the clause, in the, in the capability? I know GSA is having listening sessions and that sort of stuff. And you know, so what are you hearing out there on the street about it? So we know it was, it was recently used for GSA's Astro procurement, which is a complex procurement for um, manned, optionally manned uh, vehicles, uh, UAVs um, and you know from speaking with contractors that went after that particular contract vehicle they you know made life a little bit easier um, they didn't have to worry about that that pricing volume um, but again I mean it, we're it's we're, we're gonna see how, how things work uh, you know long term and how it impacts contractors at the task order level because we could be talking about lower margins ultimately right I mean it's going to make things a little bit more difficult for contractors to see when they're trying to, you know, go out there and look at how, how their competitors are, are, are pricing. Yeah. So, and Jeff, a question for you is like one of the sort of challenges or issues around it that I have heard from folks is the idea that, you know, GSA, it doesn't want to quote unquote from shift work from them to the customer agencies and this concern somehow about evaluating rates at the task order level for time material orders and that sort of thing, whether, you know, GSA does at the contract level currently, you know, the theory is that it's easier than for, for agencies at the task order level to say, Oh, they've already made it fair and reasonable. And we got to discount off of that. Um, so, I mean, do you think that's a real concern or, you know, does competition address that if you get more than one offer or two or three offers, you, you know, that's competition. You can, rely on competition to determine fair and reasonable rates. Yeah, I mean, I guess it'll remain to be seen how much value the kind of customer agencies place on the rates that have been negotiated at the schedule level. Um, 
you know, I, I generally tend to think that when you think about government contracts and you think broadly even about, you know, federal acquisition regulation, not outside of the schedules program even, right? If you have a competitive procurement, um, then the need for, you know, cost or pricing data and other things like that essentially goes away. So, um, you know, I, I think there would be some hope that as long as there is competition at that task order level, it would be okay. And I mean, I think currently under the schedules, there there is often, at least for services, um, because there are requirements around it, depending on the size of the procurement, competition at the at the task order level. I think it's not always there, um, but you would hope that would drive fair and reasonable pricing. At the same time, um, you know, it would be a big shift, and uh, I do think there probably are some who place a lot of value on the fact that there are prices on the schedules that are deemed to be fair and reasonable. So again, I mean, some of it remains to be seen. Yeah, the the other thing that we have to think about too, Roger, is. Um... You know, customers are used to working with the schedules in a certain way. They're they're used to seeing that that schedule price on there, so it is going to be a little bit of a change in the behavior of the of the buyer. So it it's going to be interesting to see how they embrace it. And I think if GSA does implement this at the schedules level, there's going to have to be again an emphasis on going out there and educating their customers as to how to go about doing this. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you guys more on those those issues. Just generally, got about a minute left in this segment. We can start this discussion. Like, just generally, what are you seeing with regard to commercial services on on the schedules program? Any sort of big picture trends or anything you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, so you know, I I think broadly across the government, there's been this push to buy commercial products and services, right? Um, the schedules have kind of long been one of the primary homes for for those things, right? And the idea is that the government wants to get the best and the most innovative products and services, right, uh, to maintain our competitive advantage in the world, um, or at least not fall behind, because I don't know, know if we've maintained it everywhere at this point in time. I will say with the schedules, some of the pricing requirements, I think, um, sometimes a push uh, to look at cost information rather than pricing information and other things like that, um, I, I feel that there's a risk there that some of those best and brightest and most innovative companies, products, services that are out there it might be hard to get them through the schedules program in the future right. if that you know if that trend continues. One other thing I wanted to piggyback on. I mean, when when you talk about raising the the cost of doing business with this with this market, it sort of dovetails back to the supply chain risk stuff, right? I mean, it's becoming it's it's a it's onerous in terms of the number of things that organizations have to adhere to if they're gonna go ahead and, and operate in the market. So uh, it's important to to look at the options that you have and understand how these um, you know, these different things fit within the big picture, 876, there's all sorts of other, you know, TDR and, 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 and other programs that are out there. So they're kind of, you know, breaking their two pieces of the business apart. So you have a different workforce serving the federal contractor than the commercial contractor in some cases. And I don't think that's the intention of the government when they're going out to purchase commercial products and services. Right. Yeah. It's an unintended consequence on, on some of the focus on, on, on these areas and what they're what they're asking companies to do, you know, is commercial really commercial at the end of the day, I think. And we're up on the break. So when we come back, I think we'll talk a little bit about, because I know you guys have done a lot of work on scorecards and how they work with regard to, you know, the multi-board IDIQ GWEX, like Alliant and Alliant 2 small business and Astro and that sort of thing. So it'd be good to have a talk about that. And then maybe a little about, um, you know, upcoming procurements and what, what you're seeing going on in that regard. My guests today are Jeff Clayton, 
principal and Leo Alvarez, senior manager, both from Baker Tilly. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Jeff Clayton's principal and Leo Alvarez, who is a senior manager from Geyser from Baker Tilly. We've been talking about lots of interesting things around government contracts, supply chain, Section 876, um, you know, just schedules in general. Um, this segment, and I know because you guys have done a lot of work on scorecards and how they work and, you know, and, you know, supporting your clients with regard to thinking about how to, how to score themselves, I guess, and how that all works and the, navigating it. And so I'd like to get your thoughts on that. And, you know, just to sort of set the stage, but I want to say now it's been five or six more years ago that, um, you know, this GSA came up with this innovative approach to, you know, evaluating technical proposals where a self-scoring model where the companies had to score themselves based on the criteria and, you know, the information to be submitted, then um, the uh, agency really validated those scores, which is a different approach, right? Where in the past, it's you would submit all the information and the government would evaluate it. Here, you're sort of self-evaluating yourself and then the government just goes, comes in and validates whether your self-evaluation is accurate or not and gave you, you gave yourself the right number of points. Mm -hmm. Very effective over time, but I think we've also seen some hiccups now, like Alliance Small, Alliance 2 Small Business, and that was canceled. Um, so, and again, I know you guys do a lot of work in this area, so I, I just get your insights, thoughts, where things are, what you're seeing, continued use, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, um, we've certainly seen a lot of this from GSA uh, with some of the big GWAC programs. Like you said, we had Oasis, we had Alliant 2, Alliant 2 SB, which, you know, was canceled. Um, HCATS, Astro, um, and uh, it, it has been an approach that I think has been successful. Um, it is unique in its nature, like you described there, Roger. I think in addition to you scoring yourself and then submitting it and, and the government kind of checking your work, um, uh, you know, in addition to that, whereas I think traditionally a technical proposal, you write about your capabilities and what you can do, what you could do for the agency, right? This is all about proving that you've done this stuff before, right? To a large degree on complex projects and things of that nature. And so it becomes, in a lot of cases, that um, it can be a pretty big project to kind of dig back through your records document what you did, where you did it in a way that will satisfy the government's review requirements, but, but certainly very unique um, uh, in its nature. So hey, Jeff, just uh, to follow up on that real quick, your experience is it, is it, does it reduce costs for companies or is it, you know, something, is it a wash? Is it, I mean, there's one thing to describe what you can do, right, in the traditional sense. And then you may have a piece that's experience or past performance. Here, it's almost like um, some people are, would argue it's like a, you know, it's a treasure hunt or it's a scavenger hunt. you got to go find all this information. I mean, at least that first time you do it, you have to create the systems to do it. I presume you, get, you guys help people do that. To so is it a wash or is it, is it less costly for a company? Just any sense of that? Good question. I mean, big government contractors certainly have, um, you know, spend a fair bit on, on bid and proposal efforts, right, and have teams dedicated to it and develop cross-functional teams to respond to things. I think if a company has um, good kind of contract management and administration hygiene, 
and is able to get at information um, in an efficient manner. Um, that in maybe in some cases it could actually be um, maybe not a bigger lift, maybe it's a wash, maybe it's even less. Um, in other cases though, um, it can really put companies in a position where they might be capable, but it might be really hard for them to actually bid on, on something, right? Astro is a, is a perfect example, Roger. That, that RFP was written with um, you know, pool definitions, and then they got down into functional factor definitions, which were very, very specific. And you can imagine that when statements of work and contract documentation is being de developed for a particular procurement, it's written broadly to allow for a specific outcome. It's not necessarily focused on you know, definitive, distinct, precise activities. It's more, let's get to the outcome. So proving that you've done something that's very specific can sometimes be difficult. And on that procurement, that, that was particularly challenging for a number of, of organizations that we worked with. Even with good contract management hygiene, there's yep. still a big manual effort to go digging into old statements of work and um, performance work statements. And, and you know, even um, um, in, in some cases, uh, kind of status reports issued to the government and things like that to prove that you have truly done something with artificial intelligence or machine learning, for instance, or, or something to that effect. Yeah, and I, and I think too, when, when the scorecards were originally put out, it, it was there to be as a substitute for your traditional technical proposal. Um, I think we're seeing with CISP4 that they're actually molding it into where there's this first phase self self-evaluation and scorecard. And then if you, you know, surpass a certain threshold, you move on to this phase two, you know, technical proposal evaluation. And for, you know, this goes back to your previous question. Is this a, a wash in terms of how organizations were typically um, investing time and resources and preparing proposals? Well, if you've got, the, if you have both worlds in one proposal, you could be potentially increasing the overall amount of effort when it was originally intended for something different. Yeah, it seems to me that's the double whammy right there. Yeah. Uh, you're getting hit on both sides, right? You got to go do the hunt or find all the information you need and pull that out. But then you've also got to do the traditional proposal. It doesn't, it seems to be, I mean, I just, uh, it seems to me a bit overwhelming from a, you know, especially in this day and age when, you know, we're trying to streamline things, whether it's, you know, concepts like H76 or whatever that you would layer two different methodologies in one solicitation. Yep. Overly, over, and not probably overly complex for the government to evaluate, I would imagine. NITAC is in a, is in a you know, tough position with the CISP4 procurement because I, you know, at least from what they, they're saying, they're expecting a record number of offers to be coming in. So I think this is their way of trying to limit the amount of review on the technical proposal side. So I can see why they would be looking at this kind of approach. Um, but again, you know, this is for, you know, think about the smaller businesses that are going after the vehicle and they have limited resources to play with. And now we've got to go through a long history of contract documentation to find what, exactly what it is that we need and then prepare a detailed technical proposal. It's, it's a lot to ask. Yeah, I guess one of the things that struck me about the RFP too, and, you know, you can chime in if you so choose, if you don't want to, is the fact that there, so you have that complexity in the proposal prep and evaluation. You have an additional complexity in that, you know, unlike lots of other, the other GWACs that we've seen uh, typically in the services area, they've split the contract. So you have the unrestricted 
then you have the small business one. Um, I think that create and, and to combine them together, I think that creates additional fundamental challenges on how you're going to evaluate and award those contracts. Um, and whether you're comparing large businesses to the small business, are you not? When do you stop? You know, where do you draw the line? Um, and I think it also creates additional complexity for the customer when they go to choose a contract vehicle that it's much easier, much more streamlined than you have different channels that you can go like a menu. And you yep. I small business credit. I need that. I want that. I want, you know, that capability, not just credit, but the capability of those small business firms versus a large, you know, so, I mean, it seems like this is, um, you know, just, just, you know, going to be an incredibly challenging about, uh, procurement to manage. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts or dare say anything or whatever, but that's just my question of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I think you're, you're right, Roger. I mean, you brought up a lot of the issues. I, I think there are, um, you know, a, a lot of open questions still, right? And, you know, I think as of now, what we heard most recently is that we're expecting the RFP to drop in early January. I think it was going to be mid-December. Um, and proposals were due in early March. I think it was going to be late March previously. Um, and, and there are still a lot of open questions, I think, from industry around some very specific aspects of um, the procurement of the RFP, what the final scorecard is going to look like, um, and, and a number of other factors. So it's a difficult thing to manage. Um, GSA has done it a bunch of times. Uh, this is a, a kind of new territory, at least for the scorecard thing, for, for an ITAC, right? So I think they're, they're trying to work their way through it the best they can. Your point, Roger, about the el eliminating the contract silos and collapsing into one. The the thing that I found I found I found interesting was that NITAC has indicated that they think that this will help with teaming once the contract's in place. Yet the communication has been they do not favor that they, they, they would prefer that organizations not team for the purpose of going after the vehicle, which is sort of <laughs> contradictory a little bit. Yeah, that's, that is contradictory. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I I understand where. Where they're coming from and um you know they're they're in a difficult spot but you know the right now it's still very murky as to what is going to be happening with with the contract and what's going to be in that final rfp um so organizations i think have, had, have struggled a little bit in terms of how to go ahead and properly prepare for 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 the for the release but the other thing we have to think about is that since they're going from like a, a 90 day turnaround to 60 days it's a very quick turnaround to be thinking about how do I team? How do I present that information? What's the right right combination of projects to prepare? It just it's putting it's going to put industry in a challenging spot. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's more to come on that, and we will definitely be, you know, tracking that procurement. Um, and I want to thank my guests today, Jeff Clayton and Leo Alvarez from Baker Tilly. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.